Welcome to the Pitch Podcast, where entrepreneurs and cutting edge companies come to tell us about the products they're making, the ideas they're spending time on, and the problems they're solving. Here's your host, Warren Spiewak. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Pitch Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about Berkman. We're going to be talking about teams and performance and really the backstory on this company. You're going to really want to hear it because it really is an opportunity for you to dive into something that if you're frustrated with how your company is performing from a culture standpoint, or if you're even working with a team, I mean, how many books have I ever seen where it's like, 50 dysfunctions of a team, and it goes on and on, right? This is a big topic. Mark Huber and Amy Shepley from Berkman are here with me today. If you've ever done a personality assessment, we're going to find out why this is kind of the go-to and how it differentiates from some of the competitors and why it matters. But Mark, Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, Warren. Glad to be here. Hi, Warren. So... To kick this off, you know, Mark, I know you're the CEO of Berkman and from a strategy standpoint and kind of choosing what direction Berkman goes is pretty much on your plate. Amy, you're really, I mean, this is something that you were born into, right? You're a third generation Berkman. I am. So as we kind of just jump in, I want to just talk a little bit about where this even came from. I think for anyone who's listening right off the bat, once you understand where Berkman was created, how it came to be, it really validates not just the importance, but the proof that the system is real and works and could really change a company and a culture and even make teams perform better. So let's just start there. Where did it all begin? Hi, Warren. Good to be here. So it all began in 1951. And actually, it may be before then. But 1951 is when Dr. Roger Berkman went to the University of Texas and wrote his dissertation, which would become what is called the Berkman Method. The dissertation is very similar to the assessment that you would take today. So there's actually been very little change, which I think is an interesting statement when you think about how much the world has changed, right? That something that he was capturing in 1951, we're still able to capture and it's still relevant today. But where it really started was in World War II. My grandfather was a B-17 bomber flew 18 missions, was shot down on his 19th. And of course, that in itself is a really interesting story. But why that is relevant today is after each mission, his crew would debrief and they would talk about what happened. And he would notice that sometimes they would not only have different versions of the events that happened, but it would sometimes almost turn into a fight because one person was so sure you know, that it was a plane that came in, another one thought it was a mountain. And he became fascinated by how can these men experience the same thing in the same plane and at the end of it have such different interpretations of what happened. And what he really noticed at that moment was their perception is impacting the experience. And that is what we measure today is perception. And how incredible that, you know, the concept of, you know, multiple different personalities experiencing the same thing. Adrenaline, you know, supposedly makes you record facts better is what I heard. And still everyone's perception is different and everyone's experiencing the event in a different way. And this is going on in teams and companies all across the world. Right, right. So if you take that example of the war, it was a small group of men in one plane and they're still having such different experiences. You extrapolate that to the world of work. And now think about 
how we are really interacting with different people. We're residing in different parts of the organization, maybe in the office, maybe at home. And all of that only increases the complexity of misinterpretation and misinterpretation leads to conflict and dysfunction and overall lack of productivity. So that's the connection between what Berkman measures and how that impacts an organization's ability to be productive. Now, I do know, I mean, just from the little bit of research I've done, and this is where I'm really excited for us to go kind of on a deep dive into this, but the research that I've looked into, I mean, there's a lot of people that have had experiences where they've applied for a job or they work for a company and they ask them to do a personality test. Something interesting to me about this is that there are other companies that are doing it, but different, right? Like from my research, it looks like a lot of people are doing personality tests, but it's just kind of with one thing in mind, like are they sales? Are they operations? Can we just dive into that a little bit about how you guys find yourself as a differentiator between kind of this thing that you've been doing a long time? This is your grandfather that founded this. How has the game changed? And like for someone who's a little intimidated of the several different options that they have to invest in, why Berkman? Mm. Yeah, so I think, you know, the value of an assessment is that it helps us understand who in the world we're similar to and how we can understand how we're wired versus how other people are wired, right? So categorizing people in a certain way can have a benefit. It also then becomes very limiting because it makes it seem like that's all we are. And so while we do have ways that we categorize people, the depth at which we measure a person's perception is so sophisticated that, you know, just as a data point, you can't find another person with your Berkman in our database, right? So the way you see the world is so custom and unique to you that it's not like there's 10,000 people walking around having that same experience. Again, it's very unique and personal to you, which is impressive. And again, also lends itself to why humans interacting with other humans is such a complicated event because we're not experiencing the world. We're not making sense of the world at all in the same way. It's crazy to hear that because I think for all of us, I mean, for me, I've taken several personality tests that are part of like the application process and to be like told that there's only four types of personalities that I could fit into really is disheartening. And it makes things like, Okay, when you're sales, like, and I'm using sales as an example just because of my background, but it's like when you're in sales, yes, you're goal oriented and yes, you want to make an impact and yes, you want to figure out with conviction how you can help your clients. But at the same time, if a personality test finds that people with empathy and care aren't really uh, great salespeople, as, and I'm just making this up from the top of my head of the emotions where they're having you choose these different descriptions of what you think about. To me, it's almost like, well, then you're not a complete person. I mean, everyone has all these different variations. Now, Mark, here you are. I mean, this is something that most likely, I can't wait to hear how you got introduced to this. But as the CEO, you're not really client facing. Like you didn't come in, I'm assuming you came into this really at first as an outsider. I mean, for you, there was something you probably had to learn more about and understand about Berkman and ultimately chose to kind of lead the ship and the, you know, as we get into this year and keep going, tell me like, what's it like and how did you kind of intertwine with Berkman and what kind of drove you to be part of this mission? So I first learned about Berkman back in 2006 and I was a classmate of 
Sharon Berkman's at Harvard. Mm. And we used the instrument there. And the night I took the assessment, I called Sharon up and I said, I need you to do everybody on my team. And I had her do that for me. And we used it there. And so far, I've used it in four companies before I joined here. Why? So just take me back to, so Sharon is. So Sharon's my mom, Sharon Berkman. And and she was a professor at Harvard? No, no, she was a classmate. A classmate. Okay. All right. You told me that. I I missed that. Mark in the same class. But what I think is so interesting about that story with Mark is that he actually reached out to Berkman and asked for his team to have their Berkmans done before he even saw the results. Wow. Okay. So like, All right. Actually, he hadn't even seen what it would say. And in his mind, he realized the container that was made through the questionnaire. He was like, whatever this is, I feel like I need it. Okay. So it's not even like you were in a class about this. You just happened no. to fortunately get to meet Sharon. And then she's going, Hey, I got this really cool thing. You do the cool thing. And then what happens? Like what comes out after that, that, that result created that interest into Berkman itself where you like, was it something you, you noticed it said about you and then you're triggered to say, Oh my God, this could help me at work. This could help me with the people working on my team. Well, so I'm an accountant and lawyer by trade. Right. And so I focus on numbers more than I do, or I used to focus more on the numbers than I do on the people. And at that time, the company I was running We had just hired an individual on the management team and the chemistry that had been locked solid was disrupted by adding one person. And the person's a good person to this day. I will tell you that she was a great person, but we had something bad happening there. So we used it to start working with the team to bring us back to a place where we could be effective. We were also doing several acquisitions and you try layering other people in. And it just really compounds those issues. And so for me, it was number well, like our chief software architect came to me and he said, I know why you like this. It's it's not intuitive for you. And this helps you put numbers on it so you can adapt what you're doing to what you need to do. And it's like, yeah, that works for me. So I used it there. And then I've used it ever since. In a, I've been in several different industries. And it's the really the tool that I use to help me understand the people that I'm working with, because I never read the book, The Speed of Trust. But I think what it says is if you trust people, you can go fast. Mm. And you cannot trust people unless you know people. Mm. And that's what I think it accelerates that learning. Wow. And if I'm hearing you right, it's almost like, I mean, to use the word numbers, like here it is, you're an accountant, you're analytical, you're one of those people that needs facts to like understand how to subjectively make adjustments. And here you are, you know, this is a terrible analogy, but I've actually heard a manager say it in my life, which is if you have a bad tooth, this is like when it comes to HR and like teams and whatnot, or having employees, if you have a bad tooth, well, it'll make the whole mouth hurt, right? And the only way to correct that is to pull the tooth. In this case, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying, I had something that for the whole mouth was causing a lot of disruption. There was a lot of pain and strife and like they weren't really thriving as a team because of one person. And by understanding how she perceived things or how best to communicate or what drove her, I don't know, because I haven't done Berkman, we'll get into it. 
But knowing those facts from this analysis allowed you to realign, make adjustments, and then everything starts getting better fast. Yeah, and I think you put your head on it. And I love the fact you use a dental reference because my dad was a dentist. But you know, sometimes you just need a root canal, and root canals can be a little bit painful. But once they're done, things are great. And any dentist will tell you you're better off with your real teeth than with a fake tooth. So if that person, in that example, that person was a really good person and could really help us, but we had to invest in bringing her into the team and helping us understand her. And I think a lot of times people, when they have conversations or especially email or text, they ascribe motive that doesn't exist, right? And so you're like, well, they do that because. And it's like, well, they're not doing that because. They're not trying to make you fail. What They're coming at it from a different approach and they have different needs and that's how you respond to different people differently. And so I think helping us understand that is what helps us drive past those things and make that tooth a great tooth that'll last the rest of our lives. That is so great. And Amy, I now I got to shift to you because with that, you know, we're talking a lot about work and yes, I mentioned already that this is not an industry specific thing. Like you could be in manufacturing, you could be in technology. I mean, you could just be with any kind of franchise and have tons of teams across the country or the world. And this thing, this tool that your grandfather created is something that can help all of them, despite what industry, but this is where I'm going with this. Does it help people personally? Just like for an example, you have like spousal relationships, you have parent-child relationships, something that I only just saw this little few-minute video that your grandfather was speaking about. And what was interesting to me is that he wasn't even talking about work and production. He was just talking about people living up to their purpose and like being able to navigate their life from and from this tool. So can we dive into that just a little bit to really just show the spread of how beneficial this could be for anyone? Yeah. So usually when someone has their Berkman reviewed by a Berkman professional, it's validating. And it's like, I knew that, but I didn't know how to say that. Like, I wouldn't have known how to articulate that. And so, you know, an example of a pattern that comes out a lot, and that's a pretty primary pattern, is people tend to be very social and outgoing during the day when they're at work. And then when they get home, they become more introverted, they want to be alone, they need that time to recharge. That's why very few people identify as an extrovert or an introvert, because we're actually a combination of the two. Well, That piece of information of, hey, you can be social and friendly all day, but at night you have to go home and unplug and be away from people. Otherwise, you turn into a not very pleasant person to be around. Obviously, that tip is helpful for me at work. But as you can imagine, it's also going to make me a happier, better person when I'm at home. And it made me think of we have a client that's a large tech company and they've used Berkman for years for their employees. And a few years ago, they reached out and said, we want to offer it to our employees partners, because if they can have a happier marriage at home, they're going to come to work and they're going to be a happier employee here. Right. So I think we're getting we're accepting more that there's not like a definitive line between when I'm at work and then going home and being who I am at home like those impact each other. And so the more we understand ourselves, we're not only going to have better working relationships, it's actually going to improve every relationship in our life. And, you know, in a lot of times, those home relationships are actually going to have much more of a profound effect on the person and their livelihood. Mm. 
Yeah, that's powerful. And it makes me think like, you know, I always ask this question in my interviews because a lot of times when I have a company on, you know, they're selling to companies, right? And it's only those executives that could really say, ah, I want to invest in this. I want to solve it. But with you guys, as I kind of dove into what this is, and I started seeing the level of companies that are implementing this, and I mean, these are big companies. I know there's a lot of small ones too, so I'm not saying that you're only for these giant conglomerates, but there's a lot of incredible brands that we would all know that are significant that have found value in this. But where I was going with this is that you could be listening to this and you're an employee that has maybe three or four people that report to you, or you have a kind of a relationship that's always under stress routinely within where you work with the supervisor. And you could be listening to this and going, gosh, I wish I could get him or her to do a Berkman and I'll do a Berkman. And maybe they'll realize that I'm really like, I live and breathe this company and I don't know why we're having problems going back to that whole trust synopsis. So with that, I'm going to ask you this, Mark. I mean, here you are. I mean, client facing for you is like you identifying how to take this amazing solution and figure out how to get it everywhere as fast as you can. What has that looked like for you? What are your frustrations? As Or if, I mean, I don't even know that you have frustrations, but I would imagine you kind of wish that you could work with everybody. Well, and that's clearly part of our strategic plan is to democratize the use of the Berkman within the organization. And typically it's been reserved for you know, management and up. And I think that's great. And we do good work in that space. But if we can turn it around and go all the way down in the organization and have that organization have a common language and common understanding for how do we speak with each other? How do we move forward as a team? If you can't connect all those dots all the way through the organization, you're missing what you need to really be able to perform. And that's what helps drive the clarity inside the organization for here's the mission. And so with that being said, something, Amy, you said that I find compelling too is this process, here it is, we're in 2023, your grandfather started this long, long ago. And the only real difference in the testing, if you will, is just the fact that you can add technology to actually like move it around and send it around the world and translate it if you need to. Let's talk about that. Like, why hasn't it changed? Like, why would, only because I've never done a Berkman, I don't know. But why would, if I, you know, back if it was the horse and carriage days and I did a Berkman, how would that also be applicable to me today with my iPhone, I don't know, 16 or whatever it is in my hand and, and uh, Facebook and all the technology that we have? And let's say I'm a lawyer. Like, how does it transcend from then to now? Yeah, it's because of what the Berkman measures, again, going down to the level of perception so it's literally how you're processing the world. And the reality is that is either something that's in place when you're born or by the time you're two, this fundamental perception of the world is in place. Now, that doesn't mean a two-year-old has a fully functioning perception, but in the same way their DNA is set at two, your DNA never changes, even though we look at you and it appears you've changed a lot. And so what we're measuring is so essential to and this is where like I geek out because we tend to think that our perception is shaped by the events that we experience. 
But the mind blowing thing is that your perception is actually creating the experience that you're having, right? So when you do a Berkman, people will say, well, I was, you know, the youngest of seven kids. So that's why I see it this way. But someone else from that family or the exact same experience would have the opposite perception, right? So the perception is predicting what we look for that we then think is creating the experience, but it's really the source of it. Everything in our lives, every relationship that we have, every job we have is all rooted in this original perception that's very stable. And there's just nothing else out there that measures that. So you've got this unique data point that's really showing you how a person is making sense of the world and how they're creating the world that they are living in. Every person's experience has nothing to do with what they've experienced in their life and everything to do with their perception that is telling the story of how they're going to make sense of that experience. And just as a kind of example, you know, we can see people like, do you look for the good? Do you tend to be more optimistic or do you see problems as opportunities, right? So you're more oriented towards that. And there was a training and a guy said, you know, I grew up in South Africa and apartheid. So of course I don't trust people. Like, look at my youth. How could I? And I said, I absolutely can't argue with that. There's nothing I can use to compare to that. But what I do know is Anne Frank, when she was in the concentration camp, her very last statement was, I still believe people are good. So for her, she had these experiences, but her perception kept saying, this is the exception to the rule. These people are acting this way and they're not acting like real people because real people wouldn't do this. So she kept making sense of it by saying, the world is a good place, people are good, she looked for that even till the very end. Other people, and I'm one of these, like I tend to be someone that I kind of look for the opportunities. I like the messy side of life. Like that to me resonates more. And I'm going to experience the world that way because I am wired literally to look for that, right? And we see that as, again, a strength. When you are looking for problems, you're looking for problems to solve because you believe things can be better. So it's not a negative trait, even if to some people it may be perceived that way or interpreted that way. That's powerful. And then Mark, going back to you, like, so you were an accountant, you see this work, right? I don't know if you gave me the full answer, but you became part of Berkman with like, what do you think was really your personal mission of what you saw the result could be, you know, like with you being part of this and really kind of leading all the teams. Well, so the day that we told the company that I'd be coming in, what I told them is we have all seen the power of this instrument and the impact it can have on a human being. Our job is to make sure everybody in the world can have that because that's how we will impact the world. Okay. And not to just be all over the place, but this kind of takes us down a totally different thing, but it's a thought that just came to me is that from what I saw just by kind of clicking around on the Berkman site, is that there is no option for you just to take the test and get your results and take a look at it and just kind of self-drive this entire analysis. Almost like technology, like the people that are really moving and shaking in technology are the ones that say, yes, technology is critical, but so are people. And like, there's like the blend of like making sure you're balanced and how you're approaching it. With Berkman, I want to say, in all of these personality tests, I mean, I literally have seen the ones where it's giving you four really bad things that could happen. Like, you know, it could be a big event, could be a, like as an example, it could be comparing having a heart attack 
to having a car accident to like some major terrible event. And they just want you to choose one, right? And at the end of you doing that 85 times, there's your personality, which most people would be like, I don't really, you know, they're all different and they all affect one affects a large group. One affects maybe just one person. I don't know if anyone died in that car accident. Like how much responsibility do I have to answer this whenever there's no elaboration into what they're really asking? Like, but anyway, but all of those are so confident in their stupid questions that it's like at the end of that, they're going to tell you what your personality profile is, right? Off of how you felt for this one minute. Berkman is saying, and I would do want to ask kind of like an example of what the questions would be different than that. But also, you guys are also going as far as saying, hey, I don't want your money right now. You cannot order this test unless you're going to agree to do the process and actually meet someone that can translate this. At least that's what I read. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a whole lot of response. And I'll let you both kind of like correct me or reflect on what I'm saying. Yeah. So Berkman is the most sophisticated non-clinical assessment on the market. So it's rooted in positive psychology. There's no bad Berkman. It's more of like, let us see how you're seeing the world versus it being a right or a wrong. But to your point, the data and the reports on their own are powerful, but that power is really realized when you have a Berkman consultant walking you through and explaining the implications of your score, right? So it's like, yes, this is how you kind of see the world, but here's why that's going to really help you and move you forward, or here's where that could potentially hold you back. It really is the combination of the data, which is the scientific part, and then combined with a Berkman professional who can help you understand the impact of that. Yeah, and that's where we are today and where we've been historically. And the challenge for having the whole world experience the Berkman is that's not scalable to that level, right? So we've been working on developing the technology which will allow people to experience the Berkman, get a more complete understanding of themselves and practical advice on how to apply and use their strengths and avoid overusing their strengths to help them drive their lives and their performance of their job. And so we're working on that right now. And that's really how we'll be able to move forward and complement the Berkman professional that can help at a higher level or a deeper level go into it where that's appropriate. But we can reach the masses in a different way. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, Mark, specifically just as a business model, which to me, seeing it be like that almost meant to me, like, and I'm speaking about the fact that, and this is for anyone who's listening, go to the Berkman website and just see what I'm talking about. Because number one, it's super fascinating, but you get the point very quickly that this is really about the thing it does. It's not about like making as much money as they can, getting as many downloads as they can, making it super cheap and thrifty for you to just click and do your own personality profile or whatever, however it's classified. So that to me, Mark, is a compliment to you in the fact that you guys, really, this is about the mission of what the result is rather than just canning it and making it in like a bite-sized, super technological only kind of format where you're just going, yeah, let's try to get 8,000 new customers today. Instead, it's like, no, if you want to do this and you want to do it right, make this commitment. I feel like that. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of felt like to me, you've got to really be interested and committed to do the process and actually work with someone that can explain it to you 
in the current, you know, from currently what I saw on the website. And I think that's right. And I think, you know, you said it yourself, you took one of these assessments and says, there's four types of people you fit in those four boxes. And I believe words have importance. And if you say to me, you have one sentence to describe yourself, I'm offended by that because I think I'm more complex and interesting than that. Yes. And I, I think everyone in the world would think that, right? Yeah. So we allow for that language. We allow for that expansion of understanding of who a person is. And to put somebody in four boxes or 16 boxes isn't rational. And Amy alluded to this earlier when she talked about, you know, there aren't duplicates in the database. We have a 72-year-old database that has no duplicates in it. Wow. We're used on all seven continents and there's no duplicates. And that says so much because, again, without me doing it, I'm assuming that if I were to read any one of those, if I had someone who actually could translate it for me or help consult me on it, I would be able to take away from it what might be the best way to communicate with that person, what might be helpful to motivating them potentially, or even be able to understand what their commitment level is to work versus, I don't know, you know, it just seems like it could go on and on. Absolutely. And so far, we've been talking about a kind of a one-to-one relationship, person-to-person. It gets geometrically more difficult and more rewarding to get that right when you add additional people in. And that's where our focus has been on performance of teams, right? Because we're really the only ones who are capable of delivering the information required to allow people to do that. Oh, my gosh. So, Amy, with that said, I want to hear like a story about teams because, Mark, you're right. I keep thinking about relationships between managers or between maybe an employee that's or a colleague that's not performing or you don't feel like you're able to get through to them or you just feel like you're going in loops. But from a team standpoint, from a culture of having 25 people that are in a working unit, remote or not, and I know that's got to be a factor too, but Amy, tell me like how that works from when you're trying to use it as a culture builder or a performance builder amongst 25 different Berkman personalities. Yeah, so, you know, Mark alluded to the importance of trust in a relationship and that, you know, the speed of trust, the more trust we have in the relationship, the faster the team can go. And the kicker is that every person perceives trust, builds trust, or feels like trust is eroded differently. So what I think is a way to build trust on the team, the way I think I should approach the team, communicate with the team, there may be half the people that that resonates with, and there may be half of the people on the team that actually are offended and feel like what I'm doing is eroding trust on the team. So our program, which is high-performing teams, really deals with understanding a team's purpose, how the team creates clarity, and kind of the buzzword in our industry right now is this concept of psychological safety. Psychological safety is what Google identified as the most important characteristic of a team for them to be a high-performing team. So there's you know, data there to say when we have this feeling that we can speak up and use our voice, we know that propels the team's success. And yet how you build psychological safety varies from person to person. And so that's really what the work is in that workshop is to unpack that and to start saying, you know, I think you build trust when you're candid and direct with me. And someone else says, well, I feel like you build trust when you show me respect and you don't say things in a way that's too candid or blunt, right? And from our data, we know that 50% of the population would say the first statement is true. 
And the other 50% would say the second statement is true. So we are now, this isn't just about this communication. It gets very personal and emotional, right? So it's not, you didn't say that in the way that I wanted you to. It's, he said that in a way to call me out and I'm not on his team anymore. He's, it's not just that you're not doing it the way I would prefer. It's you're doing it in a way to undermine who I am and to disrespect me. And that's how quickly it goes there. And that's why, you know, miscommunication and misinterpretation is so costly for an organization. And unfortunately, we find that a lot of times people bring Berkman in when the problems have already been created and the trauma is there and the bruises are there. We obviously are much bigger advocates for start the team off when they come together, set them up for success, and you avoid the cost of having them to have to learn those lessons the hard way. And you can fix a broken team? Yeah, you can fix a broken team. It's going to cost you a lot more money. (laughs) So it's a lot better to, when the team comes together, if it's a new project, if it's a cross-functional team, you're better off making that investment on the front end rather than letting it go south. But I think what's so fascinating is 99% of conflict among people comes down to just misperception. And it's, I'm seeing what makes sense to me. It makes sense why I'm behaving the way I am by the way I'm viewing things. It doesn't make sense to you why I'm doing that, right? And we don't tend to say, oh, well, we're just seeing it differently. We very quickly personalize it and it becomes personal and, you know, toxic. So when you can get data that says, no, look at her score. She really sees the world that way. She thinks you want her to tell you in a very direct and straightforward, candid way. She thinks she's being respectful to you when she does that. It changes the whole narrative because now you have a data point. It's not just me going, oh, I didn't mean to. You're like, wow, I'm seeing her scores and she is completely on the other side of the world from me. And now I can maybe you know, provide a little more grace because I'm like, we are seeing the world differently. What I can tell people is the people that frustrate, annoy, trigger you the most in your world, in any capacity, work or personal, it's because you're not seeing the world the same way. That is why they're doing things that annoy you. We did a study a few years back and we said, let's figure out you know, who works best together. And it was a little discouraging because what we found is that People work best with people that see the world exactly like them. And like that kind of seems obvious when you think about it. But here's the paradox for every business owner. People work better with people that see the world like them. The more similar we are, the easier it is to work together. You get better outcomes with more diverse points of view. So we need people that are different to work well together. And we know the more different we are, the harder it's going to be for us to work together. And, yeah, and what I would say to that is, you know, there's a difference between efficient and effective, right? So if we break down the work better, if you're working with all people that are the same, you can move very quickly. There isn't a lot of sidebar conflict. There's none of that. We're very efficient, right? But what's more effective? And you need to play for effective in the long term, right? That's what's going to make your company a great company. That actually brings up one thing over the last few years that as I've been doing the high performing teams program, if a team is working well together and there's not a lot of conflict, that's not necessarily a good sign. Like if there's an absence of conflict, they're running very quickly in the same direction and there's no one challenging them or questioning them 
And that is a potentially very dangerous position for the organization to be in. What a great point of view, because, you know, in my interviews that I've done, one of my favorite ones was about it's a subject of diversity, equity and inclusion. Right. And the more things that I learned about that, and I'm just talking about diversity and the fact that diversity is fine, but not if everybody's diverse and nobody's speaking up. So you don't even know what movie they want to see. Right. That's where that equity piece comes in. People having a voice suddenly you're in a position where these different backgrounds, these different thoughts can really guide you into more performance, more, you know, a broader perspective. Perfect example. And I'm getting ready to get into the aging workforce with you guys in a second. But like, I just had a significant conference that I was going to where I, you know, here it is. I'm born in the seventies. I'm Gen X. You know, we hear about Gen Z and all these different things that you have to adjust or whatever. But just something as simple as choosing what to raffle off, right? I grew up like, you know, here it is. I'm in my mid-40s. I'm thinking like, I'll just do a 65-inch TV. That sounds pretty cool. But I talked to my 21-year-old daughter and she's saying, Dad, that is so uncool. And I'm like, really? And suddenly she's like recommending a Nintendo Switch and she's talking about these headphones that everybody wants. So I just decided to like put all three items and let people choose which one. And sure as hell, yeah, well, sure as hell, everything was like, I had it so wrong just from, I can prove it in the spreadsheet because we had the QR code. So let me ask you this, Chick-fil-A, when we think about it compared to like the McDonald's that I went to in 1986 or whatever, age matters, like how you grow up matters. It has to affect how you look on a Berkman. But according to you guys, a Berkman is timeless. It can tell you anything and everywhere. So let's just talk about the aging workforce, the great resignation, younger people coming into the workplace. Is that part of your conversation with employers and clients that you guys work with? Yeah. What I'd say is it starts way above that conversation, right? It's a recognition that the world has changed. And yes, the pandemic existed, but the problem of worker replacement has existed since 1970. And so what we're seeing is a situation where I'm a baby boomer, right? We're aging out of the workforce and we're being replaced by people with different expectations about their relationship for work or with work. And that's a cultural shift that is existing and will change how we need to deal with people. But their Berkman has not changed significantly over that period of time. And that goes back to Amy's discussion about the stability of human need, right? And how that's born at two years old. So people are more comfortable expressing that difference, which is good. And we have to figure out how to deal with that, how to make it inclusive for everybody in terms of, we have to take advantage of the skill sets these people have. How do we do that? And the reason we know we have to do that is we're going to end up with many less workers over the next 15 years than we have right now. And we still have to get the work done. And so turnover is going to become more expensive and the opportunities for companies to step in and try and fix those problems and retain employees longer is going to become more critical to their profitability. And Amy, this is something that your client facing experience and all of this time that you've been around this, you can make an impact. Yeah. And kind of talking about the DEI conversation, one thing that is usually surprising to people is that there aren't gender differences in the Berkman. So there's no skew. Women are not more emotional than men. Women are not more sensitive than men. 
And even when we look culturally at different countries, the norms hold, they're pretty stable. So while it may seem that certain things about us, we see these differences in terms of how we're perceiving the world, it tends to be very consistent and it doesn't tend to skew based on gender, race, or age. But what happens in the workplace is we will attribute those things to gender, to race. So we think it has something to do with that when in fact it's not relevant. And so that's where the Berkman can be a powerful tool in that DEI space to help kind of bunk some of those myths of, you know, no, women are not more likely to be sensitive or more emotional. Like we're, we, we don't see those skews. And it can help to see how some of those biases perpetuate those narratives and seeing data that shows that's not the case. I totally get that. It's funny, like, you know, whether you're male or female, I mean, we're sensitive people, right? It's just that it might be that you're conditioned not to express it or show it yep. the, a certain way. And regardless of that, I'm just, but how much fun this is to talk about like all of this. And I know we've got to land the plane soon. So I do have a couple more things that I'd like to get to before we shut it down. But I for sure, am, I love all of this stuff because it really does matter. And I've seen it in my own experience where communication, perception, the ability for people to feel, I've never heard that term psychological safety, but wow, what a powerful term that is. Because it is, the I believe, a magic ingredient for relationships. Okay, but here's what I want. First of the last couple questions is, when does somebody really want to reach out to Berkman? Like, when is the time? Is it because you're about to do, like, you want it to be part of your hiring process? Is it because there's a problem? Is, like, what are the couple characteristics that you would share with us on when this is something you've really got to consider? So my recommendation when I think you should consider this as an organization is, when you have a team that is either a project team, a cross-functional team, that they are going to have to get something across the finish line. And especially if it's cross-functional, they're being directed and managed by different bosses. They may have different priorities, but they have to come together and get something important across the finish line. That to me is when, as an organization, you want to be proactive and you want to set that team up for success. Because you're going to, you know, increase the odds that A, it gets done, might even get done faster, but you're not going to end up throwing more money midstream because things have gone south and the team can't work together. Yeah. And the other one I would add to that is if you're in a merger and acquisition cycle, when you acquire an entity, that's a time when there's a natural opportunity for mistrust and misunderstanding of what the acquirer is trying to accomplish. And I think if you can get those things on the table and figure out how that team is going to go together, it will go a long way. And, you know, think about what you're spending on an acquisition. This is immaterial cost, right? So spend it now. Don't spend it later. Wow. I never even thought about that. If you're in private equity or investment banking and you've got two different teams you're bringing together, I see that constantly. Just the idea of like, one person's logo is obviously dominating the other one because there was a purchase. And suddenly you have two different teams that different cultures, cultures. Different and where it, I think it gets really interesting is when those employees that were acquired really loved their brand and felt like that their company really took care of them. And then suddenly they're in a new environment that doesn't. I'm just pointing out like that creates a lot of disruption, whereas a thoughtful relationship-driven company that really does care about culture 
boy, you would just know it because they're doing things like this. So super incredible. I think that's great. Okay. Last thing before we land is this. When it comes to somebody choosing to do this with an organization, whether it's a small office, you know, something local to something that really has a footprint that's international, what is the process? Like, what is the commitment or like, what is it like when I decide to start exploring this? What's the process of going from understanding the cost and what, and what that is to all those little steps to get that result? And what does it look like? Well, I think it starts with make the call. And then we identify what your needs are and develop a program. And it really is, our companies use it as differently as the individuals who take the Berkman exam or the Berkman assessment. So it really is dependent on that. And it'd be nice if we could say, well, it's X dollars per head or whatever it is. We don't really know. It's what do you need? What are the depth of the problems? What is what is the scope of the opportunity? So we can work together to find a plan and a program that works for the company to achieve their objectives. So tell us what your objectives are. Tell us what your problems are. We're the solution. You know, there's really two primary ways that companies utilize Berkman. We have a global network of consultants around. So we have over a thousand consultants where this is a key part of their practice. They are using Berkman to implement it for coaching, teaming, getting the company aligned. But we also, if you're at a larger organization that has an internal OD department, organizational development, you know, our larger clients, they are deploying and using Berkman through their own internal department through usually OD, sometimes HR. But those are the two primary routes where you either have an embedded person inside your organization that's overseeing this process as part of organizational development, or you're working with a Berkman certified consultant that can help you understand how you use the tool to get the results that you're looking for. That's great. And then one more thing about this is people might ask, well, how quickly can we get this done? Like people could be listening to this, whether it's like a blue collar or white collar company, upstream, downstream, or even if it's a manufacturer or technology company, some people are listening to this going like, holy hell, I need to get this done right away. Like how quickly can we get this and figure this crap out that we've got going on under the hood? What does that timeline look like? How quickly do we go from that assessment to really being able to start engaging these employees? I would tell you that we can move very quickly. We have a network all around the world. So it really doesn't matter where you are. We're going to be able to match up someone with the right skills and the right geography, and we can make that happen. So we're ready to go when they are. And we'll move very quickly. Well, thank you both. Listen, I think the people factor, I know, Mark, I was kind of giving you a hard time earlier because I'm just saying, I can't just go online and just do it. There's a people factor to this. There is, for lack of a better word, a bedside manner to being able to take a Berkman and really not only just receive that information, but also kind of know how to maximize and optimize what you're learning. So I want to tell you guys, I found that to be a huge differentiator in everything that I've looked into. I just want to thank you guys, whether, you know, while our our audience is very heavy oil and gas, this is one of those episodes that I find that I would share with all of my ecosystem. So thank you, Amy, very much. Nice to meet you, Mark. If you guys want to get a hold of either of these two, I'll have their contact information in the show notes along with their LinkedIn profile. So uh, thank you both. Thanks for being part of the Oil & Gas Pitch Podcast. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Warren. Bye. Bye. Check us out next week for another fun and growth-minded episode of Pitch Podcast. 
where companies join us to share their solutions with the world. Sign up for our mailing list to learn more about our upcoming events at OGGN.com.